Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Okay, we left off in the last verse of chapter 18. We ended abruptly here because I got a couple things to say there. We ran out of time. So this is the argument with the... Uh, the crowd, uh, Pharisees in particular, asking for uh, anybody other than Jesus. And the, the other Gospels do a pretty good job at explaining it was yeah, the custom to release a prisoner that the people wanted. Now, you've got to imagine in this type of government, this type of you know, controlling government, uh, a number of people were in jail that probably should not have been, right? They just, they don't, they don't like you, they'll just, they'll throw you in jail. And so that, that's your opportunity now to vote for the guy that should be in there that we want released. Yeah, it's a nice thing. So Pilate now, and as you read, especially in chapter 19, it should become abundantly clear. I mean, it is so clear, just from John's gospel, let alone the other ones. But Pilate is trying everything possible to get Jesus off the hook. Everything. And so, the people, here in this last verse, when given the choice, they ask for this, uh, the other gospel, they explain who, who Barabbas is a whole lot better, uh, not a nice guy, he's a murderer, uh, he's you know, the insurrectionist, uh, he just, you know, but not a real social guy and somebody you don't want out on the streets but for some reason they pick a terrible person I mean it just it's absolutely incredible but what's really unusual is they ask for Barabbas and Barabbas is not a name in Hebrew Barabbas the bar means son of so this is son of Abbas. But he had a name. Why don't you call him by name? So filtering through the other Gospels and, and, and the way Pilate's interaction is with the crowd and everything, it's, it seems very, very clear that you know, the, the name Jesus was a very common name back, back in his day. Uh, it's the same basic root as Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus were almost identical and just a very, very common name. So it seems clear that Barabbas' name was also Jesus. Because everybody back then, you didn't have last names. You're either known by, you, by your, you are your father's son, in this case, son of Abbas, or from the city you're from, Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate's clear, and so what he's doing, he's got two guys named Jesus, he's trying to make it clear who the crowd is picking. And... Uh, they, they've done a good job with this in, in, in movies depicting this scene. Is, you know, I mean, again, Pilate's trying to get him off. He's like, you don't want this terrible criminal running the streets, do you? But this nice guy, Jesus, it ain't done nothing, right? And, but the crowd, you know, crucify him, crucify him, and all of that. So it just really, really gets out of hand. So you're known as your, your father's son or by the city. So it's Jesus of Nazareth, Mary Magdalene. Her last name is not Magdalene. There's a town called Magdala. She's a Magdalene. 
the Nazarene. See how it goes? So your your name and then of whatever city, town, whatever, however that goes. But the, there's that's how they distinguished the uniqueness of each person. It actually would have been a whole lot easier just to give everybody last name, wouldn't it? <laughs> but they did. So, uh, but that's that's how they, they they worked around it. But Pilate is really trying hard to get Jesus off the hook. And here, yeah, the the other gospels do do a better job at making it abundantly clear. Yeah, Pilate is separating the two. You know, two guys named Jesus. Which one do you want? Uh, and in fact, you know, as we get into the next chapter, it's going to be so, so clear that you know, two times Pilate says that, yeah, I find no, no, no charge against him. Until finally then, there's one gospel records, he, he washes his hands. He just, you guys got me over a barrel. I, I can't do anything for this nice guy named Jesus of Nazareth. So it's just difficult. So the last line is now Barabbas had taken part in the rebellion. So he's a pretty much a trained assassin type guy, and <laughs> yeah, again, not somebody you want running around your your streets with your children. So, well, there goes chapter eighteen. Any lingering questions on chapter eighteen that stuck with you for weeks and weeks and weeks? Chapter nineteen. Now. We're getting into Good Friday now, right? But we're really into it. And just the first three verses, there's an incredible amount of pain in the first three verses. Uh, first verse, you know, Pilate had Jesus flogged. And as it goes along, again, Pilate trying to get Jesus off the hook. It's not that he's trying to punish Jesus. He, he's punishing him so that he could present him here by the end of the chapter as, look, I've shredded this guy beyond recognition. How about we let him go? You know, Pilate's going for the mercy clause that uh, when the crowd looks at him and says, oh my gosh, yeah, this guy, you know, we don't want to do anything worse to him. But again, you know, that backfired on him. So he, he flogs him. And the, the, that process is, again, better, better describes it in, in, in the other Gospels. Uh, specifically in the one gospel says 39 lashes and that's all in the Roman records and everything but you know, there was various degrees of depending on your crime how many lashes you got there were several different kinds of whippings and all of that this was the worst uh, because the, the, the whip that was used is a you know, got the handle, but then you had 12 to 15 leather tentacles that came out and at the end of each one they would tie some sharp objects uh, often uh, bone and glass um, alternating, so the, the the glass tears tears the skin, and the bone the, the the bone digs into the muscle, which you know was like a like a hook, and then it then so you literally have to yank it out. Um, now thirty nine is kind of an odd number, but they tried forty a number of times and killed every one of them. <laughs> so forty kills you. Thirty nine is the most severe punishment. A strong human being could sustain. A number of people died at 39 too, but you know, 40 would would really guarantee to get you. Uh, the reality is that this punishment was so severe, and the just the 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 tearing, the shredding effect of one's one's back is that you know they re, they record that in a number of these occasions. Uh, it tore the muscle away so much that you could actually see the internal organs. 
Um, just like I say, just the grossest thing you could ever, ever, ever imagine. Um, just talking to somebody today about, uh, you know, after uh, the Passion of the Christ came out, people say, oh, that wasn't that bad. <clears throat> yeah, that was not as bad. Yeah, I'm telling you, it, it just wouldn't, wouldn't have been any, anything close to that. I mean, it was way worse than what you could ever see depicted on, on the big screen. So it's just absolutely incredible. So again, that's one verse. Uh, verse 2, they construct a crown of thorns and place it on his head. And again, the Gospels tell us that, that the soldiers took big sticks and pound the thorns into a scalp. Of course, it didn't go, go through the skull, but it just you know, went, went alongside in there. And the thorns in the Holy Land from the date palm tree are 12 inches long. So not little jagger bush type thing like we have around here. I mean, these are big honking thorns. Uh, then they place a purple robe on Jesus, which would have had the effect of adhering to the open wound in the back and then tearing that off again. And then verse 3, the soldiers mocked Jesus and hit him in the face. So, I mean, how much can one guy handle? It's just absolutely incredible. Verse 4, again, Pilate appears and appeals to the crowd and the Pharisees in particular. I find no basis for a charge against him. So Pilate actually has Jesus come out to show how bad a shape he's in. You know, so I'm like, I'm faking the flogging here. I mean, <laughs> look at this guy. You know, he's got a crown of thorns and everything, and his, you know, his face has got to be swollen after getting hit in the face so many times. I mean, it, it would have been virtually unrecognizable. But the crowd has no, no pity, no mercy. Verse 6, all the religious leaders join together in one voice and demand that Pilate give the order to crucify Jesus. Because keep in mind, you know, the Jews could not have no power over life and death. You had to get permission from the Romans to do it. And that's what they're doing. They're petitioning the Roman governor to give us permission to crucify him. That's what they're trying to achieve. And they're trying, coming at it from a couple of different angles and trying to win Pilate over. But Pilate won't have any part of it. He finds no charge against Jesus. He keeps saying it, but they keep pushing. Verse 7, the Jews then try a different, different tack, and they explain that Jewish law demands that Jesus be crucified because he's guilty of blasphemy. He claims to be the Son of God. And to that, Pilate would say, I don't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. Your religious things matter nothing to me. Again, you know, they... The, the Pharisees have to prove that Jesus is a threat against the state. That's the only thing that would concern Pilate. Anything else is just an internal squabble that he doesn't want to be a part of. Especially because Jesus is a nice guy. Verse 8. Strange verse. says that Pilate is even more afraid. What, what is Pilate more afraid of? History was saying that he was responsible for the insurrections in Jerusalem at this time. I think he's looking at this point. These people are getting. My brain says that these people are getting so vehement, so angry yeah. that he's afraid he's going to have another insurrection. And they basically said in the, in the history books that basically they, he was told that you know any more of these it's, it falls on you at this point. So he's looking at trying to keep the peace. Period. And uh, yeah, he's trying to keep. Yes. His, he's trying yeah. to do his right thing, but he's also trying, at the end of the day he's trying to save his own hide too. Or remember two weeks ago I told you Pilate was the fifth governor in ten years. Yeah. 
So each one was experienced the exact same thing, and he could see that writing on the on the wall coming his way, and he thinking, "I got to I got to do something." But yeah, Pilate certainly did would have done his research and discovered who Jesus is, and that you know, a lot of people really like Jesus. So this is one of those you know. If I crucify him, is the crowd who likes him going to rebel? If I don't crucify him, is the crowd that hates him going to rebel? I mean, he's literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, there's no easy decision here. He, he can't get Jesus off the hook. Jerusalem up to this time has been a constant bloodshed. Oh, my gosh, yeah. History, so it's like, at this point, you know, why would it just amplify things? Yep. So there's, there's something in Jesus that Pilate is trying to keep alive. We, we don't get an indication of what that is, but, you know, and again, you know, the history books reveal you know, Pilate was just treacherous, ruthless, and diabolical, uh, but had some affinity for Jesus. Uh, just absolutely incredible. So you know, we get into verse 9. So Pilate's he's searching for them. Go ahead, Cindy. John doesn't have it, but other Gospels talk about his wife, too. Yes. Yes. Can I ask that question? Yes. So, it's in one, one other Gospel. His, his wife had a dream, said, you know, don't go near this guy. <laughs> it's the, you know, and so he's got that in his head too. Yes. So uh, yeah, Pilate is just a victim of circumstances here. But again, yeah, he's trying everything he can to get Jesus off. Um, and again, the when the uh, Passion of the Christ came out, uh, the Jewish community was all up in arms and complained like crazy. That makes it look like it was our fault. Duh. <laughs> you know, I mean, sorry. <laughs> We're just going by what it says here. And, you know, because, like I say, you know, the Romans had nothing to do with this. And that's where we get to the point of washing his hands when Pilate knows that I, this is just blowing up all around me. I just, I'm not giving you permission. I'm just washing my hands of it. I'm just, I'm, I'm out. You guys, in other words, you guys go do whatever you want. Yeah, earlier in the morning, yeah. He even tries to say, well, this is a Jewish issue. This isn't a Roman issue. Go right. see Herod. Yep. To try to almost pass the buck, if you will. Pilate literally did everything he possibly can. And so now in verse 9, he's, he comes back to Jesus and just asking some more questions. Try, give me something, Jesus. Give, give me something that I can help you. <clears throat> Where do you come from? So at this point, you know, from what Jesus has already said to Pilate, I, I think there's a good chance Pilate is starting to get it. He, he's starting to realize, this might be the Son of God. He's trying to get him to say, where are you from? He's getting, trying to get him to say heaven. Because he's already identified, my kingdom is not, uh, not of this world, right? So, yeah, you know, Pilate's, yeah, maybe, right? Could be. So a couple more questions, you know, give, give me a, a distinct answer. But at this point, Jesus gives no answer. In other words, yeah, Jesus is going to help Pilate because he has to die, right? This is the plan. So Jesus isn't looking for a way to get out. He could have gotten out at any point. <clears throat> but this is the plan that has to be fulfilled. So verse 10, then yeah, Pilate appeals to Jesus, yeah, help me out here. <laughs> yeah, why won't you answer me? Don't you understand that I have the power over you of life and death? I mean, there's a real frustration here. It's like, I mean, because Pilate knows this keeps going. This is not going to turn out well for you, Jesus. Let me, let me help you. But as Jesus has explained in the last chapter about real truth, Jesus now explains to Pilate what real power is. Remember, last chapter, Pilate said, well, what is truth? Now he's asking, what is power? 
And Jesus does answer this. The only real power is that from God. Jesus is also saying that Pilate has no power of life and death over Jesus because Jesus willingly gives up his life. I mean, this is the plan. So again, not taking my life, I'm giving my life. It's a huge, huge difference. Verse 11. Here Jesus confirms what what we find in the other places throughout Scripture, that every leader in the world is there because God makes it possible for that leader to be in place. Jesus is basically saying that although Pilate is guilty of the sin of not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, he then refers to, quote, the one who handed me over to you. Hmm. And that person is guilty of a much worse sin, he says. Now, you got to go back and, and look, look at the order of things. Judas betrayed Jesus. Caiaphas is the one who handed Jesus over. Caiaphas representing the Jewish system. Remember how we started the first week? You know, that's the definition here in John's mind is when, whenever he refers to the Jews, he's referring to this Jewish system that is opposed to God, has found ways to stifle God, to lead God's people away from God. It's an organized system. And Caiaphas is the head of it. So he is the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate. So Jesus is saying, all right, Pilate, I mean, you got sin. Uh, your big sin is not recognizing who I am. I mean, he doesn't specify that, but that's what he's referring to. But he refers to Caiaphas as, well, that's a way worse sin, <laughs> what, what he did, because he's representing the entire nation, the entire system. And what that means is that it's not, you think of all the things that Pilate has done. I mean, this is all premeditated. They've been planning this for weeks and months. Uh, there's, uh, this is a compounded sin. That's why Jesus says this is a worse sin. Sin is sin, but Pilate's guilty of one, Caiaphas is guilty of a whole host. So, by definition, that is worse, right? Many sins is, is worse than one sin. <coughs> verse 12, really incredible verse. As if Pilate had not been trying already, now Pilate really tries to get Jesus freed. But the Jews keep shouting that Jesus is guilty of insurrection. Jesus claims to be king, which would oppose the emperor. And again, refer back to 1836, when Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Because that was the question Pilate wanted to know. That's it. Tell me what your plans are in terms of the state. Are you trying to overthrow me? Are you trying to overthrow the emperor? Are you trying to get the Romans out of your country? Just tell me. I'll believe you. And that's where Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah. Are you king? Yeah. Where's your kingdom? Well, it's not of this world. Okay, done. <laughs> Thanks for playing our game. We'll see you later. Right? I mean, there's, there's no crime here. Good. Well, I was just going to say, because that just shows the amount of, the, the extremity, the extreme case of them trying to push through is because the Jews had no love for Rome to begin with. Right. But yet they're saying, well, he's no friend. They're, they're almost trying to pin him, you know, use him as an ally, even though they've never really had much love for the Roman Empire. Yep. Yeah. But how's, how's the old saying go? 
enemy of my enemy. Yes. <laughs> You're thinking the same, same thing I am. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. He's my ally. They would practically spit on the concept of the yeah. Roman Empire, but yet now they're trying to use it as, as a tool to yeah. help them. Yeah. And it's not in this gospel. It's in Luke. Um, where Herod and Pilate were like sworn enemies. But from the day Pilate, Good Friday, when he sent Jesus to, to Herod, and Herod sends it back, it says they became good friends. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Luke, yeah. Yeah, all kinds of weird things are happening. I mean, it's very bizarre. So back in the last chapter, at the question, you know, where's your kingdom? It's not of this world. Pilate believed him. He's ready to release him at that point. But now he, he just can't. Now in verses 13 to 16, Pilate and the Jews go back and forth. But the Jews continue to insist on crucifixion. Finally, Pilate gets to the point of realizing that I, I have to acquiesce to their demands. They're ready to tear this place apart. And Pilate puts his soldiers in charge of Jesus. Now I suspect he did that, put Roman guards in charge of Jesus to protect him. If they'd have put Jewish guards in charge of Jesus, I mean, they would have continued to beat him mercilessly and everything else. Yeah, so Pilate does a little bit that to, to, to help him out. And to, to Brian's point, a minute ago, look at verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. <laughs> you couldn't pay a Pharisee to say that. <laughs> Not enough money in the world to get him to say that. Here, you know, again, we hate Jesus that much that we're willing to, to renounce all of our beliefs, everything we've grown up with, just to get him killed. That's the, see how the system works. Yeah, this is our goal, to destroy everything that relates to God so that we can become God to the people. Yes. But according to Jewish law, that statement is blasphemy by their own rules, by their own definition. And that's what accusing Jesus of. We want to kill Jesus because of blasphemy, <laughs> because he claims to be king. And they commit the same crime to support their case. See, see how twisted this is? I mean, it's just, it's insanity. But again, this is all part of the plan. I mean, the rule in, the, in the, the entire Jewish nation, but especially among the Pharisees, the religious leaders, is that God alone is our king. And they had the understanding. Remember when, when we studied uh, Samuel? Uh, God had been their king up to the point they said, we want a human king sitting on the throne. God finally says, okay, uh, but keep in mind, that king must do everything I tell the king do, to, to lead you to do. In other words, the king is simply a figurehead for me. And that thought has always been part of the Jewish culture. God is our king. So again, blasphemy saying Caesar is our only king. We have no king but Caesar. Blasphemy. Oh my gosh. Verse 17. Now, as if to add insult to injury, Romans force the executed to carry their own cross. But to make the cross strong enough 
And this wood, they, they didn't bring in afterwards and, and protect in a barn somewhere. I mean, it was just left out. So it has to be really thick, beefy wood that would last a while out in the weather. So there's no way a human being could carry the entire cross, both beams of it. So the, the punishment was you carry the cross beam, the short T part. So you just, yeah. Hold it on your shoulders and, and, and carry it. Now, the, the, John does it, but the other Gospels re record that after all the injuries Jesus sustained, his physical strength gave out. He collapses in the, in the streets. And they grab Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. Cyrene is in North Africa. And again, the Passover... That was one of the high holy days, so Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem. So it went from you know, a million, million and a half people to five, eight million, <laughs> you know, while all these people are there uh, for this week-long Passover celebration. So Simon came from pretty far away, from North, North Africa. Verses 19 to 21. Pilate orders a sign to be placed over Jesus that he is the king of the Jews. And the Jews object. Now wait. They just accused Jesus of being king of the Jews. Kill him because he says he's king of the Jews. <laughs> so Pilate says, okay. He has a sign placed above Jesus saying, king of the Jews. The Jews object. But Pilate stands firm. And I, I, I take this as one last support of Jesus. In other words, if I can't help Jesus, at least I'm going to ir irritate the Pharisees. Because <laughs> he knew this would irritate them. <laughs> so what I've written, I've written, he says, and that's it. So that's the sign that is, it is left up there. Kind of an in-your-face type of thing. Now, John, yeah, his whole concept is, you know, Jesus coming into final glory, exalted, uh, lifted up, uh, terms like that. So you have to keep in mind now, you know, hanging on the cross is a high and lifted up event, right? Uh, so at this point, Jesus on the cross, Israel can see that, according to the sign on top, he's king, right? I mean, it's an advertisement. It's a billboard for Jesus being king. Verses 22-24. The whole soldiers thing. The soldiers d decide to tear Jesus' clothes in, in four pieces. In particular, the, the, uh, the one article of clothing that was a seamless article of clothing. Uh... And in, in the Jewish understanding of things, to have something that wasn't seamless, two pe different pieces of fabric tied together, believe it or not, there are certain fabrics that were against their religion. So you can't use some of this fabric along with some good fabric. So the one piece fabric then means this was pure Jewish stuff. So instead of tearing that in four pieces, obviously there were four guards, uh, they decided to cast lots for it. 
which we see a hundred times here in this day, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. That's another Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. Because it says that none of his clothing is, is tore apart. We're going to see evidence of a few more here coming up. Verse 25. Between the four Gospels, we discover that there are seven last statements of Jesus as he hung for about three hours on the cross. Now, you have to understand the, the mechanics of this. And this picture over here, the third picture from the left, I think fairly accurately depicts crucifixion. For notice how, how outstretched the arms are. So it wasn't you know, like this or a little bit like this. I mean, it is just because... Well, they, they had two different mechanisms. And while you only carry your crossbeam is, by the time you get to Golgotha, to the place of crucifixion, then they make the decision as to whether we want you to last for a long time or whether we want you to die quickly. If they wanted you to last a long time, they had on the upright, right about where your buttocks would be, a little seat. Yeah, sit there. For days. And days. I mean, you're bleeding, you're, I mean, shock is setting in the whole nine yards. But both are just incredibly gruesome. I'm not sure one is better or worse than the other because you're just sitting there and vultures would come and pick at you and everything else and it's just, just a horrible, horrible, horrible way to die. The other way is obviously what they used with Jesus and these, these, the other two criminals is the no-seat version, which means that stretched out like that collapses your rib cage and you can't breathe. So in three hours, Jesus only utters seven statements. I'm surprised you could get that much out. Because the entire time you were you know, you're having to lift up. Now remember, your feet are tied together, you know, nailed down, but you're pushing up with your feet to take the pressure off your ribcage so you can catch a breath. So the entire time you're up there, you're doing deep knee bends. And you collapse out of exhaustion. You had lift and then it's just so the entire time you're going up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Don't forget about the open back. Yes, yes, against not very smooth wood. Again, this was left outside, and yeah, we, we talk about the rugged cross, right? So, yeah, splinters and everything. I mean, just just horrible, horrible. One of the worst ways to die ever ever devised by, by, by human beings. In a few more verses, this is even going to make more more sense because uh, John goes into further further description of it. Now, uh, John goes goes into detail, which you know, the other gospels kind of hint around to, but uh, not nearly the the detail John offers at this point. He says that around the cross are several women. Three out of the four of them are named Mary. <sighs> they just pick a name and write that baby all the way to the bank. I'm telling you. So everybody's named Jesus or Mary back in this day, apparently. Three out of four of them. Now, the Mary described as Jesus' mother's sister seems to be the same person we find in Matthew's Gospel who's described as Zebedee's wife. So put those two together. James and John are cousins of Jesus. 
how interesting is that? So John, his best friend, his cousin, is also present. So five people total there at the cross. In verse 26, John identifies himself. And this is incredibly risky. I mean, it was incredibly risky for the women, but for a man to be there, one and everybody knows Jesus had disciples, you know, obviously this is a disciple. Why the guards didn't arrest him right at that moment is truly a miracle of God. So Jesus, now seeing his mother and his best friend present, tells his mother to consider John now as her oldest son. And John is to consider Mary as his mother. Even in such incredible pain. This is the longest statement he makes on the cross. Again, having to lift up and catch your breath and, and, and speak is, was incredibly difficult. But even in such incredible pain, Jesus is still concerned about others. Even though Mary had other sons, by Joseph, she does as Jesus suggested and went to live with John. So it seems obvious that Jesus places his mother in John's care and not that of his half-brothers, Mary's other children, because all of them have abandoned Jesus. Right? None of them are there. The only encounter we've had with them is when Jesus was back home and after he had been in Jerusalem and done some miracles there and became fairly renowned, remember, the brothers now say, yeah, why don't you go back to Jerusalem and wow them again? And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do it. Remember, Jesus snuck in secret and all of that. So, you know, these, these are not... These guys are not helpful. So... Jesus does not want to entrust his mother, mother with them. Instead, I know John will, will take care of her. So, behold your mother, behold your son. Now, where's Joseph? We have no idea. But it's obvious he died some time ago. Um, so, a woman now has to be connected to a man just the way it was so without a husband then the next person in line was the eldest son Jesus is the eldest son he's out so now consider John is the eldest son and he will take take care of you and unfortunately Mary doesn't she goes to live live with John Verse 28. In Mark's gospel, he records that as Jesus began to carry his cross, he was offered a drink that had a drug in it that would, would numb the pain of crucifixion. But Jesus refuses that drug. And now this drink offered in verse 28 is different. Really, really bad wine. <laughs> vinegar wine. Tastes more like vinegar than wine. Yuck. Right? Would not satisfy the thirst. Just be awful, awful, awful. Now, is it any wonder that Jesus is thirsty? You and I get juice after we give one pint of blood. Bunch of babies. <laughs> Jesus would have lost 80 to 90% of his blood after all this. 
you know, the crown of thorns, of course, the open back, you know, the, the nails, uh, just unbelievable amount of blood loss. It's amazing he, he could even function. <coughs> I find it interesting, a lot of, and it would be a study all of its own, uh, of the symbolism. John uses a lot of symbolism here. I find it interesting that a few chapters ago, Jesus is saying to the woman at the well, that I'm going to give you living water that you will never thirst again. And now on the cross, he thirsted. Yep. Find it interesting that John does that a lot. Well, again, back, back in that occasion, he wasn't talking about physical water because that's what the woman wanted. I'm tired of coming to this stupid well, so give me, but give me that. And Jesus is talking about spiritual water. Right. I mean, that's, that's John. So there in verse 30 then, as they offer him this nasty vinegar wine, he utters, it is finished. Now that's not a sign of resignation. He's saying that I have completed my task. Or it is accomplished. We're done. So it's not like I quit. <laughs> it's like I've run the race. I've done what I came to do. And then it says he dies. That he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Yes. Which is the classic way of saying a person dies. So he's dead then. Soldier stabs him with a spear. He dies again. <laughs> just they just can't can't get enough of this. Now, John specifies that that the the sponge with this wine vinegar in it was was handed up to Jesus on, on a hyssop branch. Now, Bob, your symbolism here. Yeah. Right, the hyssop plant is the specified plant that the Jews used to get out of Egypt. That was the Passover. You used a, a, a small branch of that, dipped that in the lamb's blood, and that's what you smeared over the... Oh, that was the prescription. You used the hyssop plant to spread the blood over to save yourself. And here the hyssop plant is used now. Yeah, just some neat symbol, symbolic connection here with, with, with Passover. So it's the blood and the water that came from his right. side. And the wine, water to wine at Canaan. John is just full of this. you got to look, I don't know what the word is, between the lines kind of it would really help if you're Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah, well. It seems more there than meets the eye. Verse 31. John identifies the time is of the essence because since it was the day before the Sabbath, which begins at 6 o'clock Friday night, it is already 3 o'clock. And Jewish laws, you, you can't be in contact with, with a dead body from 6 o'clock Friday night to 6 o'clock Saturday night. If you come into contact, then you're not worthy to receive whatever rituals and all that for for the Sabbath, the whole nine yards. So somebody dies during that time. They just lay there. They had no problem with that. Yep. <laughs> and again, you know the uh, 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 the good the story of the Good Samaritan. The two religious people walking the other side of the street because he might be dead. I mean, he's near dead, but he might be dead. 
if I go over and touch them, then I'm going to be defiled for a week, and then I got to go through all this, and you know, ritual washings and all night, and you know, a couple of hail marys and all whatever, you know, and, and go through all this, and I don't want to do it. It's not worth my time, and they walk on the other side of the street and walk away, right? So yeah, it just uh, the pressure of that again, but that's the system that was inbred into these people, and that's the way they thought. It would just it's a completely different way of thinking than what you 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 and I experience on a day-to-day -day basis so they only have three hours to get body down put it somewhere and get out and of course then the plan is we'll come back first thing Sunday morning when we're all good again but in that critical time period and again that's why they didn't use the the the, the upright with the seat because yeah, knowing it's it's Friday, knowing here we're in Juland, you know, we gotta get you know, the, yeah, the, the soldiers know that this is this is the rule and so you know they don't want these guys lasting. So they they the John specifies they, they, they come around with a, a a big mallet, wooden mallet, probably about that big on its handle, and they would come and break your kneecaps. So that you can no longer push up, you would die of asphyxiation in, in a couple of minutes, right? Just, but that was a way to expedite things. And that's what they do. They do prisoner one, they do prisoner two, and then come to Jesus and realize he's already dead, but just to make sure we'll stab him, you know, and uh, make sure he's extra, extra dead. So again, no, no seat for these guys. You don't get no stinking seat. And again, I'm not sure which one is worse. I, I, at that point, I think you're going to want to die faster anyway, so uh, we'll just, just get, get it over with. <coughs> so the flogging about killed Jesus. Then on the cross, they determine he is dead, and then they stab him with a spear, which is a good chance that spear went right up under the rib cage and hit the heart. So, in other words, he's dead. Now, there's, you know, you can get on all these con conspiracy websites and, you know, the guys that don't, don't believe we went to the moon or, you know, the Kennedy assassination or the Holocaust ever happened or whatever. Uh, and, you know, Jesus was just in a, he was, you know, in a coma. He was this, he was that, you know, just, even if he was, he certainly would not have had the strength to roll away the huge stone. <laughs> Remember, women, multiple women, on their way there, stop and think, uh-oh, we didn't think about the, the stone. <laughs> Who's going to roll the stone away? We can't do it. Even then, the blood loss alone. Precisely. I mean, the weakened states and everything, it just there's no way he could have rolled the stone away. So, for, I mean, just all those, I mean, it just, come on. He was really, really dead. Now, verse 35 is kind of interesting. John pauses for a second. As, as if to say, I know this sounds incredible, but I, John, the writer of this gospel, was right there. Remember, he identified himself at the cross with the four women, right? So I am an eyewitness to all these events. And I'm simply writing to you, reporting to you what I have seen with my own two eyes. Verse 36. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, both the piercing, you know, the stabbing with the, with the spear, and the fact that Jesus' Jesus's kneecaps weren't broken, fulfilled two more Old Testament prophecies. Because Old Testament prophecy, he will be, he will be stabbed and he, he won't have a bone broken. 
Now, there's a really good chance, the medical community tells us, that when they, uh, I mean, they lay the cross down, they lay you on the cross, and here's one other variation the Romans had when they really wanted to do the last. They wouldn't use spikes. They would simply tie you up. So there's no blood loss at that point. So when they were really, really awful. Well, when, they, when they had a, a Sunday morning crucifixion and wanted to do the last all week, you know, so no blood loss, no shock, no nothing. I mean, that was maybe the worst of all because you're just there normal <laughs> and just, you know, they're not feeding, not drinking or anything and it just then the birds come and everything else is just, ugh, just, just awful. But, yeah, so Jesus' kneecaps weren't broken, but more than likely, his joints were dislocated. Again, you know, look at that, that angle. I mean, that just that pulls, you know, elbows and, and shoulders right out of socket. Um, so when you're, you're, you're laying down, they lift you up and then drop you into a hole. And when you hit... I mean, they, they, there's not four guys holding on to this and say, careful, Sam, you know, you know drop him easy. You know, <laughs> you know, it comes down in that, that sudden crash, that sudden stop, just doosh. You know, when you're only held up by, by your wrist, just just dislocate everything. And having dislocated a shoulder 25 years ago, yeah, that was most incredible injury I, I've ever had and you know when it happened I mean I was 99% per, per, unconscious I mean it just it just knocks you out it just absolutely knocks you out it just it just the pain goes right right through your entire body it's absolutely incredible and that would happen in all of his joints I mean just incalculable pain absolutely incredible verse 38 we need a hero step in Joseph of Arimathea Dun, dun, dun. Now, he's identified as a disciple of Jesus. But recall back, it must have been our, the first meeting we had here back in September. We talked about disciples, and it, it, you know, John makes it very, very clear that there were, you know, you have the 12, but you had quite a few others who were disciples, who, were, who strictly followed Jesus pretty much the entire three-year period, uh, but they just weren't part of the twelve. So Joseph of Arimathea is one of these additional disciples. Now, Joseph is named as one who followed Jesus, but secretly. Not sure how you do that. <laughs> but he found a way to do it, apparently. Uh, but Joseph did not want to be seen in public with Jesus. Didn't want to be associated with Jesus. But was a supporter of Jesus for all, all that time. So, I get the incredible transformation of Joseph here now with a great need he's the guy who steps up goes to Pilate and asks for permission to, to have his body so a guy who wanted to be in secret now puts a spotlight on himself so this isn't a, a gradual transition here this is like I'm in dark now I am in broad daylight in one second He goes to Pilate, he gets permission, and the other Gospels identify Joseph as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court system. So that's why he doesn't want to be associated with Jesus in public, because he's part of the system trying to destroy Jesus. So we already saw that Nicodemus was of the same mindset, 
uh, in a bunch of chapter 8. Um, they're starting to get concerned about Jesus and bring charges against Jesus and everything, and Nicodemus kind of stands up for Jesus. So, you know, he, he was kind of, kind of in secret too. But bottom line is, Joseph is a high-ranking Jewish official who now puts his life on the line and identifies himself with Jesus. Verse 39, we need another hero. Joseph, a secret follower, now all of a sudden, our good friend Nicodemus from John 3.16 comes forth. Now, over this about two-year period, Nicodemus has been growing in his belief. And what, what Joseph was doing, you know, in secret, in official capacity, see, he could be present for a lot of the things Jesus was doing. And maybe scowl or make it look like he didn't agree with it, but he's there to hear what Jesus has to say. And so Nicodemus, also a Pharisee of high rank, he does, he does the same. They've, both men have remained in secret for all this time. But now when the need presents itself, they both step up. Joseph offers his, his new tomb. Now, the, the, the tomb structure is kind of interesting. Um, you would burrow out in a mountain, limestone, uh, a big open area. And uh, have you seen descriptions of the catacombs in Rome? You know, under, under the city, just a narrow walkway, and at least three indentations in, in the walls. You know, one here, one here, and one here, on both sides. And that's where they would put the bodies, in those indentations. But as you walk into the tomb, they had a, like a, a, a table arrangement that the body is prepared on. So Jesus wasn't in one of the indentations yet. They didn't have time. So they just threw a bunch of spices at him and said, you know, don't, don't stick too much by the time I get back and we'll be back Sunday morning. So when the description of where they found the, the burial cloths and all of that you know, was on, on the, the prep table before he was actually put into one of the indentations. So the tomb would have had, you know, depending on the size of your family, or uh, how many people you wanted in there, you know, don't we do that with grave sites and stuff? We'll buy three plots together so we can spend eternity together or whatever, you know. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that's what they did. They had all these indentations filtered throughout that, that open area on the inside and no one was there yet. So this is the first person in Joseph's family. No one from Joseph's family had died yet. So that's why I said a new tomb. But there were many options in there. <coughs> kind of like bunk beds. <laughs> so both these men are secret followers. But now they're willing to make their belief publicly known. Now the 75 pounds of spices is fairly significant. Um, it, it, it harkens back to the excessive quantity of wine that Jesus made at the first miracle. Remember? I mean, just gallons of, this was the end of the party. I mean, <laughs> more like three people left. But I mean, just, I mean, those, those cisterns, you know, pots, you know, held 18 gallons apiece. And there was a whole ton of them. You know, just turned it all into wine. Just enough wine to keep you going for the rest of your life. Uh, also remember the excess food taken up after the feeding of the 5,000. So 75 pounds is pretty excessive. I mean, if I gave you 75 pounds to, to carry 
and keep in mind they're also carrying Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of weight here. Uh, just a, a, absolutely incredible. But it, it, it shows the Nicodemus's love for Jesus. So rather than bring five pounds, he brought 75. Which is, you know, getting up there to what would be the... Uh, I mean, they were expensive spices, too. So the, uh, the value of that represented the value of the person. So a very rich person would have 75, 80, 80 pounds. The most wealthy person. Poor people would only, you know, have a little wee bit, maybe. Verse 40. So the two men take Jesus' body, and with little time to go through the proper burial rituals, they simply place Jesus' body in the tomb, along with the spices to cover the odor. And then they had to leave. Now again, the, the, the custom was, you, know, you don't want to lay a body on the prep table, because then wild animals would come in, right? So they all had a stone, big old stone, to roll in front and to, to protect everybody inside. Now, the other Gospels tell us about the, the great concern that the disciples, since everybody knew that Jesus said, I'm coming back in three days, that the disciples would just you know, push the stone away in the middle of the night, steal his body, and then claim that he's resurrected. And Caiaphas says, and that, even after we kill him, that news spread will be worse than anything we've ever experienced before. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is going to wind up winning this, so we have to prevent that. So they petitioned Pilate to get two guards there and seal the tomb. So you're not getting in whether you like it or not. Now at this point, at the end of this chapter, it still doesn't look good, does it? And again, if you were one of the disciples, if you had, you know, especially John, you had witnessed this throughout the course of the day, or the women, uh, most of the other disciples were, were too chicken, and they ran off somewhere. They might have been watching at a distance, but uh, these guys are right there, and they witnessed all of this. And, I mean, at this point, Jesus is dead. No two ways about it. It's not like we're, we're hoping maybe he isn't dead. Nobody thinks maybe he's not dead. They all know he's dead, 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 dead. That's the way we leave this chapter, and that's where we'll stop for the night. I wonder what will happen next week. How do you reconcile the difference between John's timing and the other Gospels in terms of the day of the month when this happens? John has it on the crucifixion on a different day than does Mark and the other. One's 14 nice and the other's 15. Well, that has to do with the day of preparation, the way you interpret the day of preparation. Yeah. And it was a day of preparation for Passover, which is be 14 Nisan. Nisan is a month. Um, and then every week there's a day of preparation for the Sabbath. So when you put them all together, it's obvious we've already celebrated the Passover Thursday night. 14 Nisan. Now 15 Nisan is the day of preparation for the Sabbath on, on Saturday. So the two, two are a little bit foggy because John seems to want to have Jesus crucified while the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover meal, which occurred, as you said, Thursday. 
That's in the synoptic, or the Mark's gospel. That's not in John. So it's interesting that in one case they have the lambs being slaughtered while Jesus is on the cross. That's John. And uh, they have the, this done on the 14th, which is Thursday, in Mark's gospel. And of course, Luke is now to follow Mark. So I'm just curious as to how we resolve that. I'm looking for that exact verse in Mark. I'm not finding it, but yes, I've I've, I've looked at that. I, I I don't see conflict. You're saying about the time in Mark? Yes. Uh, all it says is it's 1542. It says it was preparation day. Parentheses. That is the day before the Sabbath. Right. So as evening approached, that's when it gets into Joseph Arimathea. What's well, the same thing as John's? Right. That's what I'm saying. I I I don't see a, a conflict. There is. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a little change in language, but. The meaning is still still the same. Yeah, it's like the uh, oh, in the Old Testament, I forget what what it is, but yeah, there's obvious conflict because the, the 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 two different books of the Old Testament record the same event, but at different days. But the one is from there was two different calendaring systems, and so one was talking, one referring to the one calendaring, the other talking about the other, and when you put the two of those together, it is the exact same date. <laughs> But yeah, that that's one crit critics of the Bible like to point out. Well, right there's a contradiction. No, it's not. Right? I'll keep what we got. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Hey, to me. Jeff. 